0: want to put the pandemic in the rearview mirror and then when it happens again and it's going to happen
1: again we won't be ready so i'm hell bent on making sure that doesn't happen welcome to war docs the military medicine podcast this show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdal, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active-duty vascular surgeon. Colonel retired Dr. Matthew Hepburn currently works for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. He recently retired from Army Medicine as a fellowship-trained infectious disease physician after 23 years of service. During his time on active duty, Dr. Hepburn was part of Operation Warp Speed, a partnership between HHS and the DoD. You can read his full bio on wardocspodcast.com. Welcome to War Docs. We're privileged to be joined by retired Army Colonel Dr. Matthew Hepburn, an infectious disease specialist currently working for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Matt,
2: welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. I'm thrilled to be part of this. I love what you're doing. Happy to tell my story tonight.
2: Dr. Hepburn, tell us what led you to military medicine. Why did you specialize in infectious disease?
0: It really starts with my dad. He did uh, Navy uh, ROTC to get him through college. He actually was part of the, the nuclear Navy. Uh, if you remember, with Admiral Rickover in, in, in that time period, and did some of these early around-the-world cruises on on uh, nuke on uh, surface warfare ships, and I just I wanted to be like my dad. He, he recently passed away, and so. But very fond memories. My dilemma wasn't joining the military as much as it was Army versus Navy. And life finds a way of working out. I get terribly seasick. <laughs> so that would have been a, ter- would have been a terrible choice to, to join the Navy. And so, but it was interesting at the time because the recruiters, the Navy recruiter said, okay, you'll do ROTC and you'll probably then serve on a ship. And I said, well, I, I really like medicine. Could I go to medical school? And they said, oh, we'll see. And the army person said, oh, absolutely. And I don't know if either were actually correct or not, but the, the way it turned out was that was a decision point for me um, joining the army. So I did army ROTC to get me through university and then a medical school scholarship afterwards. And I really look back at my Army ROTC training that was focused on leadership, and one of the things I've marveled at military medicine has done something really special in terms of how we train leaders and that professional development created leaders that were incredibly flexible and knew how to execute an operation regardless of whether that was a military operation or a vaccine operation. And I look back on my Army ROTC experience as really laying the foundation of military leadership. Again, it's in our DNA, but then I look around in, in health professions and in hospitals and academic research programs and, and certainly in our government, and the people in leadership positions have never had any professional development in leadership. I think the assumption that well if you're technically you're really good at surgery or you' you're really good at family practice, so therefore you can run a hospital or you can run a research program or you can run a big program in the government without any leadership training why would we think that that would be successful? So I graduated med school, I got a chance to serve in San Antonio Brook Army Medical Center did a chief resident year, one of the best years of my life. I looked at the different medical subspecialties and infectious diseases was just the right fit. And, and I was very into the opportunity for military medicine to have a huge in that case a global health impact i loved our history in terms of the research that we did on neglected tropical diseases and our overseas labs and i wanted to eradicate malaria and save the world and that really drove me into an infectious disease especially i just thought that could do a lot of good there i vividly remember this conscious decision to say I want to do something where we can impact hundreds or thousands of millions of patients because we have developed a better way to keep someone healthy. And so coupling the research and save the world kind of stuff, it really drove me to infectious diseases. Certainly no regrets there. And the infectious diseases fellowship training we get in in the military is truly, truly second to none. And uh, for me, it was certainly infectious diseases, research experience in San Antonio, Brook Army Medical Center. It was great partnerships with UT Health Science Center, totally different population, totally different practice. VA, totally different practice, but all of that was just the foundation. I did the tropical med course at Uniform Service University. I spent six weeks at the Thai-Burmese border working on drug-resistant malaria with uh, a great mentor, Scott Miller, and so on and so on. Like our training experience had all of it, had the span of what you would need to know for to be a great infectious diseases.
2: So after your infectious disease fellowship, you were an exchange officer to the United Kingdom. What was your role there? And tell us about an interesting experience or memory from that assignment. Yeah, yeah.
0: In my second year of fellowship was when, uh, that was 9-11. But then also, if you remember, the anthrax letters were a few weeks after that. And that was really a seminal moment in my career, in my life. What the anthrax letters, if people remember at the time how scary that was, and it reverberated kind of into my fellowship program, because people said, look what bad people can do in terms of weaponizing these infections. And therefore, if they can do that, then just imagine how much worse and how many more bad things they can do. And then that led to a conclusion of we need, if you will, the cliche of a Manhattan project against all of these terrible pathogens where we should develop a vaccine and treatments against every single one of them and take it off the table. And then I was sold that at that point, that was a pivot moment for me and said, I want to do biodefense. I want to protect our nation and the world. And oh, by the way, I love the idea of being able to develop vaccines against anthrax and other pathogens because then we can also use that knowledge against malaria and all the global health stuff too. And so I was recruited to the place where the army or where the military does biodefense research in Frederick, Maryland, at USAMRID, where I did vaccine work there for a little while, and then got the opportunity to be the exchange officer for the equivalent in the United Kingdom. But that that moment, I kind of did biodefense and national security stuff and really just never looked back.
1: So you mentioned USAMRID, and that, for those who don't know, is the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases, and you were there in 2007 to 2009. Um, yeah. What was your most interesting area of research from your time there that you remember?
0: I think it's worth noting that this was the go-to place for the high consequence pathogens. And I think one of the things in military medicine, we're, we're so privileged by those that went before us. And sometimes we don't get a chance to reflect and tell those stories as much. USAMRID was the nation's reference center for these highly dangerous pathogens and both in terms of doing the research to develop vaccines, also the expertise, and then also sending out teams worldwide so that we could understand these these diseases, we could test our diagnostics and potentially even develop vaccines and test them. So USAMRIT, I think some people are familiar with the military's proud tradition in terms of tropical medicine and working on malaria vaccine and dengue and our overseas labs, but USAMRIT had that similar tradition Really, for decades that worked on these these highly dangerous paths. That stint that you're uh, mentioning to me was actually the the thing that was most memorable. There was the work I did with with the uh, Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, or it's called CTR, and. That program was really came out of the fall of the Soviet Union, and broadly speaking, was aimed at reducing the threat of weapons of mass destruction, which started with the Soviets' uh, nuclear arsenal. And so, it was an originally engagement on non-nuke disarmament, and then they worked on chemical weapons facilities disarmament, and then they came when it came to biological weapons. The Soviet Union had some facilities. But the real problem was access to pathogens. And it turns out that the Soviet Union had a large array of a essentially a pathogen surveillance network in Russia, but also throughout the republics of the former Soviet Union. And these scientists and public health experts would work on collecting Samples of dangerous pathogens such as plague and anthrax and brucella and tularemia. And, you know, that's what they were good at. And they would, you know, culture it in the laboratory and they'd send it back to Moscow. And they would, it was just this entire network. When the Soviet Union fell, that network collapsed. And now we had experts in infectious diseases and, and dangerous pathogens who are now out of a job. So the program, which I still think was brilliant, and it was some of my most satisfying work, was to take these people who were well-qualified in infectious diseases skills, laboratory, public health surveillance, clinical medicine, and say, okay, you used to work on plague, now we're going to have you work on public health concerns in your countries. So now you're going to work on influenza or now you're going to work on different outbreak investigation for different outbreaks that are occurring in your country. And so translated, what that meant is I spent a ton of time in the caucus, So uh, Georgia, Azerbaijan, um, and just incredibly rewarding work because we went over there and we said, hey, let's work together and partner. Let's help you set up surveillance. Let's get better diagnostic tests. Let's teach you how to do clinical research to Western standards. Note we set up the first, if you will, approved what's called a federal-wide assurance for the institutional review board in the country of Azerbaijan. And we said if you're going to do clinical research, you need to be able to make sure you have you meet international standards for ethics for the conduct of that research. So here's how we do it. It was a lot of roll up your sleeves working side by side with those people and you know I just treasure those memories because I think we made a big difference and again it goes back to two key points first it's really great the united states did that and i think you know me as as a small part of a larger program i think made a huge difference in those countries and the second is like who gets to do that? Like, again, it was, it was such a privilege, you know, I go over there and I'm like, I can't believe they'll, they pay me. <laughs> like, how do I get a salary to go over to work on public health in these, in these settings with really, really good people that are trying to do the best for their countries. And so great, great memories of that time.
2: You then deployed to Iraq in 2009, What was your most memorable clinical case from that deployment?
0: A couple of really significant memories from that deployment. What I uh, hated being away from my family, really loved the people that I deployed with. And in particular, it was mostly we're at a a level two at Camp Taji. It was a level two plus. We had a CT scanner that didn't work all that well. And most of it staffed by uh, Area Support Medical Company, which was first part was uh, California Reserve Unit. And they were great. But for most of the deployment, it was Iowa National Guard. And have we, anybody in the military sort of knows this, but it's worth saying. I mean, you know, in terms of salt of the earth people like the, the National Guard, the Iowa National Guard that I deployed with, true American heroes. And these are people who are police, fire, insurance, college students, all of these walks of life. But when they were asked to do medical, you know, to be army medics, to get out there, to run Kind of the clinics and do a lot of our operations. Uh, They were absolutely amazing, just truly amazing, extraordinary individuals focused on the mission. And you know, we should really celebrate the medical contributions of the National Guard. Everybody has these stories, I know, but it's like it shows what the average American citizen can do that cares about serving their country and how much they can provide. The specific example is that we were at at our level two, our primary mission was actually detainee care. We took care of the base too, but it was primarily detainee care. And that was an incredibly difficult mission. And it was, again, mostly the medics going out into the facility, doing the sick call with the detainees on a daily basis. And they never lost their cool. And the detainees made it their mission to sort of provoke these soldiers. They just held up. It was always treating the detainees with respect and dignity. And I mean, I can't think of a single incident where they broke and under all kinds of pressure for a multi-month deployment. And I, I was always struck by that. These are very young individuals who served at the height of professionalism. The other part that was a vivid memory, I'll never forget that back to my infectious diseases and pandemics world, like I, I spent the, the spring wave of the H1N1 pandemic In Iraq. And so we had to contend with H1N1 in a uh, detainment facility. That had huge challenges. It was incredibly difficult. We did the best we could for the detainees. And when we had vaccine, we vaccinated the detainees. It was the height of medical care. At that point, we had antigen detection flu tests who, that were just terrible <laughs> so one of my lifelong impressions was accurate diagnostic tests even if they're quick and easy at the point of care they've got to be accurate and so sort of lived that in my subsequent years
1: so you mentioned the h1n1 and swine flu and you were the director of medical preparedness for the White House national security staff what lessons did you learn then that you used for you know what you were asked to do with covid
0: so much so much and where my career has come full circle. Now I'm I'm, I'm two weeks in, in my current assignment at the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House. This is my second tour. And so my second tour has made my first tour so vividly memorable to me. And frankly, sort of the, I don't know if if you feel like this, but there's, there's times when like you look back and you're like, How did my supervisors and my team put up with me? Because I was just so clueless. (laughs) I had so much to learn and so made made so many mistakes. I think I would start with just a a lesson on mentorship. My title there was Director of Medical Preparedness. I came in in 2010, essentially at the end of the H1N1 pandemic, part of an extraordinary team of very good lifelong friends. And serving on that part, it was part of the Homeland Security Council. So we reported to John Brennan and the mentorship of the leaders that turned me from somebody who had no idea on policy and and just, I could not think strategically to save my life. And the the patient mentorship that sort of helped me develop my strategic leadership is, is what I'll never forget. The specific group that we worked with turned out to be kind of lifelong friends. I was just on a call with some of them right before this interview. But that group has subsequently bonded and come together in terms of whenever outbreaks are occurring. And certainly at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, there's a guy named Carter Metcher, for, for those of the listeners that have read The Premonition by Michael Lewis, uh, Carter's sort of this featured character. And Carter, I mean, Carter took me under his wing and mentored me from day one. And, and just truly, uh, truly appreciative of that and, and appreciative of the friendships that, that we formed there. We took lessons from H1N1. We tried to learn lessons. We said, we need to make vaccines faster. We need better diagnostic tests. We need better public health surveillance. Primarily, I worked on what turned out to be called the National Strategy for Biosurveillance. And there were some good ideas in there. And we talked a lot about disease forecasting, and that was a little bit before its time. And now it's become really come to fruition as a normal. But we actually really struggled with investment. And after H1N1, if people remember, we went through a period of sequestration in terms of our federal government spending. And so as much as we had lessons learned, there were no resources for that, and there was almost this sense too of H1N1 was was bad. It was a terrible worldwide pandemic, but there was almost like this: well, it could have been worse, and it wasn't that bad. And you know, maybe people overreacted a little bit, and now we're doing sequestration. So, sorry. And what sorry meant was we, we just didn't have the resources. There's some really good programs. I can talk you through, I think, some of the investments then that have really helped us in this pandemic. But there was a lot more that we, as a federal government and as a nation, I really wish we did. And we didn't do that. So, so what does that mean now? Is that means like, God bless, that cannot happen again, you know? <laughs> and like, I watched it. I was there as the director of medical preparedness, working with the CDC and the NIH And all these people and, you know, we're like, we don't have any money and blah, blah, blah. No one really cares. And there's everything else is so much more important. And what if that that can't happen again? I'm sort of back at the White House now. And I'm like, I saw this movie, you know, where once we got through the pandemic, no one cared. And, you know, we had to go into budget trimming again. And then we weren't ready for the next one. So I am so determined. We, We all should be, of course, because we're in it right now. But a year from now, let's say you get through the Delta wave and we don't have another significant wave, and COVID more or less subsides. In a year from now, everybody's going to be talking about everything else and we want to put the pandemic in the rearview mirror. And then when it happens again and it's going to happen again, we won't be ready. So I'm hell bent on making sure that doesn't happen.
1: Let's fast forward to the COVID situation. And we're familiar with Operation Warp Speed, but tell us a little bit how you got involved in that and what was your role?
0: As we're fast forwarding, I I do want to highlight another point, which is after the White House, I got a chance to serve at DARPA for six years. And what a magical, awesome, amazing place. And, And again, In terms of a military medical career, like who gets to do that? For the listeners that aren't familiar, it's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. DARPA was formed when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. And President Eisenhower essentially within days said, we are never going to let this happen again, where we are so caught unaware and surprised. So DARPA's model is prevent technological surprise. And what we do is they bring in program managers for a set period of time who make investments mostly on early high risk type research, but if it pays off, then it will be transformative for a national security purpose. And DARPA had the wisdom before my time, but also with me there starting in 2013 to say, preparing for the next pandemic is a national security issue and devoted a lot of resources. And we actually, DARPA, while I was there, created an entire office called the Biological Technologies Office, which was life science research for national security purposes. And really good innovations there for military health and how we take care of soldiers, but also a lot of work to get ready for this pandemic. And I'll give you two examples. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I don't think people realize the foundational DARPA investments, how impactful they were for this pandemic response. So one of the things that I worked on in the portfolio was RNA vaccines. And again, that was built on investments that were made at DARPA even three plus years before I got there. So so we were working with Moderna when Moderna was a very small biotech. And There was recognition back then that Moderna and a lot of this other RNA technology would be great. And why would it be great? Because you could make a vaccine very quickly, and you could also potentially scale the manufacturing at the speed of which a pandemic occurs. And the Moderna story and the RNA story was a lot of contributions, but DARPA made a fundamental contribution to that. That was very significant. Another example was us funding programs to discover antibodies. For this COVID pandemic, there were essentially a Vancouver biotech company called Abcelera had been getting DARPA investment while I was there. And I left DARPA in 2019 before the pandemic, but Abcelera discovered some of the first antibodies for COVID made those antibodies available for Eli Lilly. And they were one of the first products that were licensed as part of the monoclonal antibody treatment that we've been using now. The point is, is that the department of defense has played this really critical role in preparing for the next pandemic with the investments and the training and all the different things that I've been talking about. But again, like what a privilege to get to have a military career where you get to be on the cutting edge of this biotechnology research and this biotechnology revolution. That was really the setup. So I retired in 2019. I stayed in the Department of Defense as a civilian. And the reason for staying was to keep working on pandemic preparedness. So Basically, I was in the right place at the right time in January 2020, when we were getting a lot of indications like something was really going wrong in Wuhan, China. And we were on the phone with my good friend Carter Metcher and and sort of our group of friends and you know, saying, hey, this is really going to be bad, sounding the alarm within the Department of Defense and saying, this could be very significant. Let's ramp up our ability to make antibodies and vaccines and be part of an HHS team and an HHS process. And because I was doing that and, and frankly stirring the pot <laughs> and really saying, like, this is, we got to do more, we got to do more, we got to do more. And I will say this, I think our, the investment that the Department of Defense put down, there was some that was put down very early in the process that I think was great, but then I think once people realized, with the incidents at the Teddy Roosevelt, for example, that this was going to have a massive operational impact, that's when the DoD investment for vaccines and antibodies and and all and all that stuff really kicked in. And because of that, when Department of Defense got the call and said, "You're going to partner with HHS as part of this operational warp speed thing," they said, "Well, that's." That's Matt. He's the guy that keeps complaining that we're not doing enough. So let's send him over to HHS. So that's how I landed there. I think it was just amazing. So amazing that I got a chance to do that. I, I think... One of the things for me was most of the Department of Defense contingents at Operation Warp Speed uh, were not vaccine experts. So they were essentially, it was led by General Gus Perna, who is an unprecedented, amazing American hero. And read his bio and whatever is said about him, it underestimates what he did for this nation. But, But General Perna brought his staff, his team, and led approximately a hundred of us. There were a few people who had some vaccine and clinical research expertise, but for the most part, HHS contributed the vaccine expertise and General Perna and the military, the mostly the army team, came with the operation supply chain distribution and, and all of that experience. And again, Operation Warp Speed could not have happened with that influx of just remarkable DODs, you know, soldiers who I got a chance to serve with. I had this fairly unique role because I was kind of a translator. So it was the HHS people, completely different culture. And they were like, what are these army people talking about? They have, you know, cadence and battle rhythm and plannings. And why do they keep planning on everything? And then the the DOD people are like, the vaccine people are using all this jargon and all this other stuff. So I ended up kind of translating between the two cultures. It was great. I got a chance, you know, firsthand observation of how you can bring these two cultures together and how it can work.
2: What was the biggest challenge that faced Operation Warp Speed? There were a lot of,
0: just from a vaccine development standpoint, again, the average length of vaccine Takes ten years to develop a vaccine, more or less. But mostly on the side of ten years, and people have quoted that essentially the fastest before warp speed, the fastest that a vaccine had been developed and approved was approximately four years. Just beating that timeline was and was was an incredible challenge. I think though the part that is underestimated. The reason that we were able to develop vaccines so fast, a critical point of that was being able to manufacture those vaccines at scale very quickly. How that was accomplished was certainly investment and a willingness to say, we will buy these vaccines even if you don't get approved and we may waste those doses, but we want you to run these things in parallel instead of in sequence. But it was also coming in and, and looking at every bit of the equipment and the supplies and the raw materials in the supply chain and the detailed analysis of every single bit of that and expediting and prioritizing that. We had this thing called the Defense Production Act, which said at wartime or a national crisis, you're going to prioritize these things in terms of the private sector. And so we use that to prioritize everything that these, the companies needed to make that vaccine. All of that supply chain analysis was all Department of Defense. All of the working the details, all of the contracting interesting for Operation Warp Speed was Department of Defense. And once we had those vaccines, all of the plans for distribution – for administration, making sure that we had enough needles to give a vaccine to every American and that distribution plan in in close partnership with the CDC. But that was all General Perna and that was all the Department of Defense team. The expression that General Perna used that resonated with all of us and, and always will was this idea, he called it leading from behind. What he meant by that was the public health response needed to be led by public health professionals at Health and Human Services. However us as leaders could significantly influence the action with having them be in charge and be the public face. But for us to do all of the operational planning, the details, the rollout, the contingency planning, the decision-making contracts, I mean, all of these things that really made the engine of Operation Warp Speed successful. The Department of Defense worked all those details. That didn't have to happen. That was a decision by a military leadership team that we weren't going to run all over people and we weren't going to make people do everything our way and that we were going to be really good teammates, figure out what we needed to do and execute it. I mean, just successful military operation. We're military leaders. We plan operations. It's just what we do. So we, there's no, nothing unique there. But I can't tell you the number of times I had a a health and human services people or other people in our government. And they said, you know, Matt, I had absolutely no idea that the DOD actually did this. They, They just didn't have any comprehension of that this is what we do for a living, but also what a military leader can do. Flexible, adaptive, all the things I've already mentioned. And I'll never forget that.
1: You talked a little bit about some monoclonal antibody treatment. How did you prioritize, what was the proportion of effort that went into therapeutics versus vaccines? At that point, we were in May and we, we knew
0: that this was a highly contagious respiratory virus. We knew that that treatments and monoclonal antibodies would only take us so far. The chief scientific advisor for Operation Warp Speed was a, a GSK executive named Monsef Salawi, world-class vaccine expert. Vaccines were the only way out, and there was a recognition. Now, we knew we needed treatment. We knew that there were scenarios where our vaccines could be 50% effective. I mean, think about your seasonal influenza vaccine. We have just taken for granted 90 to 95% efficacy. Unbelievable. But there were a lot of scenarios in our mind where we might have a 50% effective vaccine. And so even more so, the monoclonals and the treatments would have needed to play an even stronger role. Vaccines was always the first priority. And that was always going to be where we put most of our energy, because that was the only way to really, truly get out of this pandemic.
2: So how do you draw the line between cutting red tape and cutting corners, trying to develop something? This Oh, I'm glad
0: you asked. So people make an assumption that you can't do something quickly and still do something at the highest level of quality. You know, there's sort of this inherent assumption that the reason it takes five years to develop a vaccine is because you need that long to do it right. And if you do it any shorter period of time, you're going to have to compromise safety or you're going to have to cut corners or everything else. And it's not true. The beauty of Operation Warp Speed, one of my main points is I hope Operation Warp Speed becomes a new normal. I hope that we can, for every future vaccine, I hope we develop it in a year or two. For our new cancer treatments, I hope we can do that like we did with antibodies. Most of our current cancer treatments, the new ones are biologics, right? And so those are antibodies. And so if you can make a COVID antibody in a year, why can't we have a whole host of next-generation cancer therapies that are developed in a year? So we're aiming to to create this new normal. The new normal is project management doing steps in parallel rather than making everything very sequential. Large, very well-designed clinical trials and expeditious regulatory feedback, that was the secret to our success. But one of the things that I think we did well, but also it gets into vaccine messaging. Unfortunately, this this message didn't come across as clear as as I wish it had. But throughout the process, first point is that I think we were very transparent. The the evidence for these vaccines published in peer-reviewed journals, publicly available, the companies were very willing to publish their data. But that was also contingent on our relationship with them, is that our expectation is, is that they were positive or negative, they were going to make their data public. I think we also, what we saw with the FDA advisory committees, with the CDC, is that all of those deliberations were public. And, and you, you think about how how great that is in a free society, <laughs> that you know the expectation to get your drug approved is that we're going to not only make that data available, but we're actually going to show you what the experts are talking about and how they deliberate and how they view your vaccine. Um, so, So the process, I think, was transparent. The process also met all of the quality standards for manufacturing that any drug would. So there was no... Well, maybe it doesn't meet the quality standards, but that's okay. It's a pandemic. There was really no compromise on product quality. And finally, when you looked at the sort of the evidence to support it, you were running 30,000 volunteer clinical trials. I mean, that's a massive clinical trial. Now that's very expensive. I mean, the the downside of a very large clinical trial is it's expensive. But in this case, I mean, the trade off for having such a thorough, high quality evaluation of these products and providing very strong evidence, again, showed us that you can develop a product this quickly. And not cut corners in terms of safety and quality.
1: So, what keeps you up at night in preparing for future pandemics that may come from nature or potentially uh, part of a bioterrorism? Everything, program?
0: everything. So, so the
1: first is complacency,
0: like I talked about previous, because that's what happened last time after H1 after the H1N1 influenza pandemic. I'm concerned that even the things that we did fairly well, we're going to like forget. And and we're going to go back to the use product development as an example. And I'm being provocative. I know that. But why can't a better influenza vaccine use that as an example? A much better influenza vaccine. Why can't we develop that in a year? And why can't we develop all sorts of products? Like the new normal of product development takes one to two years instead of 10. I know that we're not going to always be in an emergency. and We're not going to have those resources. So product development is going to take a little longer but wouldn't it be great if we had a product development, that type of pace of product development for Parkinson's disease, for the different cancers, which we're really struggling with coming up with alternatives for the things that we find really untreatable or, or that we just, the the treatment is not successful. We should see a massive acceleration in all of that product development. That should be the new normal. It's probably not going to be, I think we're going to get into a regression of a, back to normal, a back to normal in terms of FDA reviews, a back to normal in terms of how pharma spends money and stretches out their timelines just because they don't want to take risk. That concerns me. I don't want to regress. We, we've made a lot of progress on diagnostics with self-collection of swabs and at-home testing. I think we should have at-home testing for all sorts of infectious diseases, especially contagious ones, And that should be ubiquitous and freely available. I like the trends we've seen in telehealth and, and what, what I like about telehealth is, is that telehealth keeps people at home so that they're not coming into the healthcare system and making people sick. The more that we can take people at home, the more we enhance containment. How good can telehealth and digital health and all of the, you know, physiologic monitoring at home and at home diagnostic testing and all, I think continuing to push that helps us for pandemic preparedness. I think it also makes a huge difference in terms of equity and in terms of being able to access people that really struggle with accessing our healthcare system. And for me, that's a way you open to health. Our goal should be, how are we improving the health of our population? And transforming healthcare as you have to go to Walter Reed and drive up eight levels and park on the top floor and show up an hour early just to have a 10 minutes with your dermatologist to us reaching out to our populations that were responsible for their health care and truly taking care of them. And we get that in the military, right? Because we take care of a worldwide deployed force. So it shouldn't be huge stretch for us to reach out and take care of our population instead of them taking care of us. So, so things like telehealth, Why would we regress back to (laughs) pre-pandemic? You know what I mean? Like we need to capitalize, enhance these types of investments, make telehealth, make taking care of patients at home even better. Our health surveillance data, is it's much better than we've had before. All the hospitalization data and things like that, it's on the New York Times website every day why can't we have that for other diseases? Then we truly know what our population is getting sick from. We could have another pandemic soon and it could be worse. We were always worried about flu. Flu was always, what's the most concerning thing? We thought it was going to be another pandemic influenza. For, For those that want to be educated and maybe depressed a little bit. There's a really wonderful book called The Great Influenza by John Barry that really tells that story of the 1918 flu. And the story goes is that George Bush read that as part of his summer reading back in the mid 2000s, and then sort of started a whole White House effort. And this is written in the premonition too, saying, wow, could that 1918 flu thing happen again? And this was in the time of H5N1. The point is, is that I read it recently and it reminded me that we were just so Eric that we looked at the 1918 Spanish flu which was misnamed because it wasn't from Spain but we looked at that and we said oh that was horrible and it killed so many young people it was just decimating it's, it's an interesting story too for the military physicians because the military the outbreaks in the military bases were atrocious but there was also a lot of military medical um effort to sequester patients and take care of them and tons of military medical heroes in responding to that pandemic. But even though it was 1918, you know, their science and their laboratory diagnostics weren't bad. They didn't know it was a virus, but they understood that there was a lot of secondary bacterial pneumonias, but some places did contain it well, some places did contain it poorly. But our arrogance before this pandemic was, well, that's never going to happen here again, because you know why? They, they were in the stone ages in terms of healthcare and we're so good at healthcare. Now we'll be okay. What a tragic sense of hubris that
1: we had. There's a, a quote that uh, one of our previous guests said from Aldous Huxley. It says the one lesson of history is that man doesn't learn the lessons of history. I know, And, and that's, that's unfortunate.
0: I know I'm extremely worried. We're going to have another one. I'm extremely worried. It's going to be worse. And I'm extremely worried. I mean, what if we're having, you're like, hey, we're doing podcast 2.0 war docs 10 years down the road. And after we had the next pandemic and you're going to be talking to me and say, God, we didn't even learn those COVID lessons and we got hit again. And and a ton of people died and and shame on us. So uh, you you can see I'm obsessed with this issue. I do want to make a point before we finish on military healthcare, though. Make no mistake. I think that the Department of Defense has adjudicated itself very, very well in this pandemic. We've talked a lot about Operation Warp Speed. We've talked a lot about the DARPA and the other military medical research investments in vaccines and antibodies, that have served us so well in this crisis. There's so much in terms of the military response and how we've augmented the civilian response in the healthcare system. And there's so much in terms of how our military health system, volunteers, have vaccinated patients, taking care of patients in the ICUs, our critical care docs, another group of heroes, this pandemic, I think we've done really well. I think we should be proud of ourselves. And I think we should be proud of the military medical leadership example. But I have a point on this as we go forward, because I'm concerned a little bit that there's a sense in the Department of Defense that says, you know, we helped out for this pandemic, but that was a one-off. And you know it's really other people's responsibility. And we're going to go back to what we conceive of is traditional business for the military. And I strongly disagree with that contention. And my argument is is that ultimately the Department of Defense is an instrument of national security. And national security I define as protecting who we are as a people, who we are as a civilization. And I think our Department of Defense and our military should configure for future threats and whatever those threats may be. And for us to say we know what those threats are is crazy because we don't. But one thing we do know is that this pandemic disrupted us as a society and had a massive, atrocious impact on our civilization. So how can we then not think about the future pandemic or the future type of scenario, especially if what if a bad guy figures out how to do this again, is one of the things that has to be one of our top national security priorities. And therefore, we should be prepared for it. That's the argument I'll make. But I want to make that argument specifically for the military health professional. And what I think we did in this pandemic is the military health professional showed up for work, And they were heroes, not me, but others were truly heroes in terms of their response. And analogous in my mind to how we emphasized military medical readiness and support for combat casualty care, as we have done for the last two decades, and rightly so and we will continue to do that, and we need to continue to make that one of our primary missions. But why wouldn't we make another mission for military health professionals to say that you need to be prepared for infectious diseases threats? That's the future threat landscape. And whether you're helping out on an HADR and helping respond to a dengue outbreak in, in Southeast Asia, or whether we're trying to minimize and eliminate influenza on an aircraft carrier, or whether we're called into service again for the next pandemic, that's a threat and we're uniquely positioned to be really good at responding to it. So why wouldn't we prepare for that? Why wouldn't we train our professionals? Why wouldn't we have career paths that say, you're going to get really good at public health outbreak response, and we're going to nurture that. And we're going to encourage you to do tours and assignments as LNOs with HHS and doing you know overseas work with other countries or part of Indopaycom. I think we need to say that's what that's what our military medical professionals should train. It should be one of the future threats that we should be ready for. And we should nurture that.
1: We've been speaking with retired Army Colonel, Dr. Matthew Hepburn. Matt, thanks for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs. We really enjoyed it.
0: Fantastic. I appreciate you listening. <laughs> and happy to uh, Hopefully come back in 10 years and say we took pandemics off the table. I'm going to fight. I need, I need everybody listening to join me in that fight to make sure
1: this never happens again. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of WarDocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team WarDocs on our website, WarDocsPodcast.com. That's WarDocsPodcastOneWord.com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.